guess the chapter. That I have been blessed by what has gone on in the service thus far, by your singing, by a period there, one verse. Uh, Dr. Whitworth often gives us a chance to sing one verse without accompaniment, uh, and we discover what a great choir we have just in our student body. Uh, it would make you think that this is really a Church of Christ school uh, because we can sing so well without instrumentation or that it is uh, made up of uh, uh, people in the uh, old free Methodist tradition who uh, still think they're a hundred years back uh, when they were working without instrumentation. In any event, it was a, a blessing and then I am so much helped uh, by uh, a choir doing what our choir has done for us this morning, uh, lifting us Godward, challenging our souls to beauty and strength and purity of life. Um, and I, of course, admire this choir for the fact that uh, in order to sing, they practice Tuesday and Thursday during the lunch hour. I don't know whether this is a weight control program or not, uh, but it does bless us musically, and I'm grateful for it. This sermon uh, began uh, just over 50 years ago. Now, this may frighten some of you. You wonder how you'll ever get around to preaching if it takes that long to get a sermon complete. Or it may be that some of you are whispering to yourselves, I always knew that our president is slow. I didn't know he was that slow. Uh, but here I am with a sermon that began over 50 years ago. I was the new pastor at the First United Methodist Church uh, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and I wanted so much for my people to have great experiences. I felt that I should expose them to as many wonders and blessings of life as possibly I could bring their way. So I met with my ruling body early and told them of some of the speakers I hoped that perhaps I could bring if that's what they wanted and discovered that these names of great preachers that were so important to me were unknown to them, uh, which is a good thing for a preacher to find out early. Uh, then I mentioned one name that they immediately responded to. I remember Roy Gafford in particular said, I'd like to hear him, E. Stanley Jones. Uh, he was more, of course, than a preacher, more than an evangelist, more than a missionary. He was by that time an international figure. Uh, I had no better sense than to try and bring him to my church, and to my great delight, he accepted for a three-night engagement, and incidentally, enjoyed those three days and nights so much that he asked me if he could come back the following year to do it again, which indeed he did. What I remember out of so many quite uh, intense conversations with Dr. Jones, because he was an intense man, was a day when we pulled up alongside the Beaumont Hotel, just outside the barbershop of the hotel, because he was going to speak for the Rotary Club there. The Beaumont Hotel is no longer there. I don't know what's there now, because downtown Green Bay, as with many cities, has changed tremendously, as I learned when I went back there a year ago to preach again. Uh, it was a little while yet before the Rotary Club was to meet, so we sat in my automobile talking, I in the driver's seat, he in the passenger seat. When he talked, when I was with him, I mostly listened. 
on this occasion, he began to reminisce about other times when he had spoken for service clubs. Particularly, he recalled a time when he had traveling with him uh, a soloist who happened to be what in those days we said was a Negro. Today we call an African-American or a black man or woman or whatever. We said Negro in those days. Uh, he said he was a marvelous soloist. And I took him with me everywhere to lead the singing and to be my soloist. But he said that day, I just asked him to come to the Rotary Club meeting with me where I was speaking. When I arrived, the president of the club, Dr. Jones reported, said uh, with some hesitancy, is your friend going to sing? And Dr. Jones said, no, no, he's just going to be sitting with me here on the platform. The man said, well, you want him to sing, don't you? No, he said, he's just my co-worker, and I wanted him here with me. And suddenly, Dr. Jones realized, as he reported it to me, that this club was going to be very embarrassed to have a Negro in the meeting unless the Negro was performing or doing something, had some reason to be there, couldn't just come to be at the club. He had to be there in a special role, or he wouldn't be there. Dr. Jones told me about it and smiled. And then he leaned forward and said, but God is at work. Great things are happening. He said, 10 years from now, no one in America will even believe that there ever was such a thing as a race problem in America. Now more than 50 years have passed, and we still have a race problem in America. We have it in a lot better control than we did then. Indeed, in those days, the only Negro in Green Bay, Wisconsin, with its then 70,000 people, was during the football season when there were some blacks on the Green Bay Packers. No one else lived there. I know full well because I helped to get housing for the one who finally did move in to be a worker in the city. But Dr. Jones was absolutely sure that in 10 years, America would never even know that there ever had been a race problem. He would be excited, I think, that one of the candidates for the presidency just now is an African-American. But he is wiser than to think that that's the end of the race problem. He would know also that great numbers of people are being very guarded in what they say because they aren't ready to face the fact that they have prejudice and that we have great fear as to what prejudices will erupt at this time in our country and show themselves where otherwise they are quietly submerged. But I tell you all of this, not to make any political statement this morning, goodness knows, and not really to preach about race. I want to tell you, of course, that E. Stanley Jones, when he said in 10 years, America won't even know that it's ever had a race problem, he was dead wrong. He was ridiculously wrong. 
He was absurdly wrong. And I honor him for it. I am so glad that he had such dreams. I wish we had more dreams that were almost impossible of fulfillment. I wish we would dare more often to be flat out wrong and to embrace being stupid. To em it's not much of an effort sometimes. <laughs> I wish that we could believe so much in our impossible dreams, in our Lord's commands, in our Lord's expectations, that we wouldn't mind being wrong. If we could get that way, we would finally discover that it is better to be an optimist who is wrong than to be a pessimist who's right. Anybody can be a right pessimist. It takes something special in your soul to be a wrong optimist and still keep going on. That, you see, is the mark of the people heralded in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is talking to believers who are ready to give up. They are not sure they want to go on. They fear that at any day their lives could be taken from them because they're in an alien culture. And with all of that fear, they are getting a word of encouragement, a long word of encouragement, from an apostle, name unknown to us, who wants them to know that they should lift up the hands that hang down and strengthen the feeble knees and come through to victory. He wants them to know that what they have in Christ is what the ages have waited for, that he is all of the things that were seen in the past as a shadow for the Hebrews and now our reality in him. And so, finally, to make his point, the writer of Hebrews gives us this magnificent history. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abram and Sarah, on and on he goes. And then sensing that probably he's losing his audience and that furthermore he can't give a story about each of these people, he starts simply listing names uh, and, and sometimes not even able to remember names, he simply says, these are the people of whom the world is not worthy. And then he ends with a distressing word about all of these people. And these all died in faith, not having received the promise. They never got it. You see, our impression about faith is that we know somebody has faith because they pray and they get a healing. They pray and their son or daughter is saved. They pray and they get a good grade. They pray and they make success. We think that's what faith means. Faith means positive results. But the writer of Hebrews says, we know these people had faith because they died with it when they never got it. That's faith. They all were commended for their faith. God was proud of them for their faith. But they didn't get what they were waiting for. The writer goes on to make his point, of course, that they were waiting to get what has been given to us. 
But the point with them was that they died in faith, not having received the promise. And more than that, of course, he was saying to those Christians in his day right then, and that's the kind of faith you're going to have to have because I can't guarantee that you're going to escape the perils of persecution. You too may die for this, but that will be a proof of your faith. What I'm saying to you this morning, of course, is not a popular word to say, especially not here in America, where we are. Uh, we live in a day when our evangelical world measures everything by its success quotient. We love to hear the testimony of the quarterback who won the game. This we want to bring to our youth group, so they'll be believers too, and maybe even quarterbacks. We want to hear from the political candidate who won and who tells you after he or she won, and I prayed about it, and God blessed me, and that's why I'm here in this office today. We want to hear from the young Christian woman who has become Miss America, or Miss Fruitcake for that matter, just so she's won something. <laughs> we want them to win something. And when they win something, we know how wonderful their faith is. And it proves that God is with them. We have no idea that this is a peculiarly American gospel. They don't know this gospel in Darfur. They don't know this gospel in Sudan. They don't know it in parts of India and Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran. They don't know this gospel of success. They know a gospel where all of their life they are wrong in the judgment of the culture around them. I love people who dare to be wrong. Now, I need to interrupt myself here to make two statements. On the one hand, that I'm not speaking in defense of being irrational. When you pastor for a while, as I did, you will have any number of people who want an appointment with you to tell you about the invention they're working on, or the plans they have to become governor of the state, or their dream of their career, or simply to tell you of a new doctrine they discovered and that you ought to know too so that you're able to preach better. Uh, and you discover with some of them the last year in the pastorate that they're still in the same place they were that first time they came to see you. I'm not asking you, I'm pleading with you not to be that kind of irrational person. There's nothing to be said for being irrational. And the very fact that you are alone in your position doesn't prove you're right. It just may prove you're erratic. So I'm not arguing for being without judgment. On the other hand, neither am I by any means giving you the counsel of despair. I suspect that pastoring, as most of you will, or working in churches in the United States, you're not likely in your lifetime to know severe persecution. Some of you who will go to some places in the world will take your lives there in danger. But most of us will be in places where 
we have an automatic prestige just by being the pastor of a church. And I'm not telling you that it isn't pleasant. I'm not telling you that it isn't nice to have people like you. I still prefer to have people like me rather than hating me. As long as I've been around, I haven't gotten over that. It's nicer to be liked. Of course it is. But, and so I speak to you with a passion for this gospel. No sense of defeat. No sense of despair. The utter, con utter uh, contrary. I, I, I never finished writing a book without realizing that I have more folders now to write more books before I die and that I won't get them all done. I never read my Bible in the morning just to be waiting before God without wishing that I had another lifetime to preach the sermons I see there that I'll never get to preach. It's an exciting, thrilling, magnificent thing to be in the work that we are in. And so there's nothing of despair in what I'm saying to you. What I am saying to you is you've got to be tough. You have to have faith. And you have to have some dreams that are beyond the ease of fulfilling. You have to be ready to accept disappointment and to take it in stride. You have to be ready, for instance, for one thing for sure, to believe in people and to trust them and to let them break your heart. You have to take the time to work with young people who then, after you've worked with them, and they've told you how wonderful the Lord is to them and how deep their faith is, you see them go off and leave it all. And you want to say with Paul, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. But Paul doesn't stop preaching because Demas has forsaken him. And you don't stop believing in young people because one of them failed you or because ten of them failed you. You keep loving the alcoholics and the druggies who struggle. And as you work with them, they turn over a new leaf. And they say, can I see you regularly to see this through? And then one day they stop coming to see you because they've gone off the road again. The person who's struggling with homosexual or lesbian urges, and they say, I like you because you treat me like any other human being. Just keep believing me, will you? And you keep believing in them. And one day they break your heart by leaving the path. Don't worry about your heart being broken over people. Don't worry even if they betray you. Just ask God to put your heart back together again so they'll be ready for being broken still another time. Because, you see, we follow a Christ who said that we should take up our cross to follow him. And you can't always look composed and dignified and commanding and attractive and victorious when you're bent under a cross. We are called to be people with dreams beyond what is possible. Get some vision for your life that's going to stretch you to the limit. I ponder often from my limited knowledge the great student volunteer movement 
early in the 20th century. They had as their motto and their expectation that they would win the world for Christ in their generation. What a dream to have. What a ridiculous dream to have. People get born faster than you can get them born again. How are you going to win the world for Christ in your generation? But they girded their loins and went out to do it. And before their generation was over, the movement had died or it dwindled into bypaths. But I think of the 10,000s of souls that were saved by their drive and their energy and their wild dreams while their dream was falling apart. You won't get all the things accomplished that you want to accomplish with your youth group, your choir, your consulees, your congregation. And some other people will tell you of the wonderful things they're accomplishing, and you'll realize that what you do is chopped liver, and that there's nothing about your ministry that seems to have that wonder and glory to it. So what? So you're going to straighten up and pick up your cross again and go out to win the battle. Because we follow a Lord who is like that. And we follow a God who so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son and risked his energy and his gifts on people like you and me. One of the things that has helped me most to be patient with people who fail is to realize how many people have been patient with me in my failures. And to remind myself of the people who expected me to accomplish something and who by the time they died still hadn't seen it happen, even in a small measure. And when I look at all of that, I say, I dare not become impatient with those who are not making it at the speed I have outlined for them. So I invite you to become part of those who don't mind being wrong, who get dreams so great that it's very doubtful if they'll bring them to pass, who are tough enough inside that when they get knocked down, they whimper for just a minute, and then they get up and enter the battle again. That you would be one of those who would love until it breaks your heart, and then go on loving. That you would become, that is, like the people of the book of Hebrews. They all died in faith, and God commended them for their faith though they never saw it happen. I, I am telling you simply that I'm grateful for that day when I sat outside the Beaumont Hotel and I heard a man say a ridiculous thing. All the years that have passed since then, all the marches, all the beatings, all the humiliations, all of the things that have gone wrong, he couldn't have imagined it would be so. He could only imagine that in 10 years, America wouldn't even know it had ever had a race problem. I, I want you, see, to give you the kind of faith that says, 
I will have dreams and commitments and giving of my life that will, I hope, win the ball game. But if when I exit this life, the score still seems all against me, and I look as if I've lost the game, I will wait to step that one step further, where I will be greeted by those who will say, don't pay attention to that scoreboard. We work with a different scoring system here, and you've won. Thank you, E. Stanley Jones, for having a dream that was ridiculous. I want to keep on having dreams like that. I want you to have them too. Almighty God, in Jesus' name, bless us, your people. Help us to dream largely for ourselves, that would be holy, that would be nice and redemptive and beautiful in your sight, that will carry our cross well, for the churches we'll serve and the people we'll know, that we'll be ready, O oh God, to expect more than will happen in our lifetime. Give us such faith. In your son's name, amen.